0: Welcome to Continuous Play Podcast and our review of Ghostbusters. What do you want? We will review the plot, talk about its significance, and give you our recommendation for future viewings. Yeah, we can do more damage that way. Ghostbusters is a copyright of Columbia Pictures. Any discussion of the film, its characters, or events is done so strictly for entertainment purposes only. The Ghostbusters theme song is the copyright of Arista Records and no infringement is intended. Welcome to our review of the Ghostbusters franchise, I'm Jake. And man. And we are glad you have joined us here for our podcast. Appreciate you downloading us. If you get a chance, go back on iTunes, give us a rating, and let us know what you think in our forums as well. Leave us a bit of a message and we'll be glad to correspond with you. We're going to talk about the Ghostbusters universe, primarily f- centered around the two films, the 1984 blockbuster release and the 1989, I guess we can call it a blockbuster sequel. They both made a lot of money. Yes, this is true. I was
1: actually in my, um, University of Useless Trivia, I found out, um, I found out that actually the role of Winston was mm-hmm. supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy, oh, but yeah. he couldn't do it because of Beverly Hills Cop, which actually outgrossed this movie for 1984.
0: We we need we need to talk about the the development of this, and that's one of the things to get to. Let's talk about how this film started. Of course, Ghostbusters is, is directed by Ivan Reitman. A lot of people know his work throughout the 70s and 80s, even into the 90s. He did some good work. His son Jason is is sort of one of the uh, the young directors that, that everyone seems to love in Hollywood right now. But it was written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, Uh, Bill Murray was in it, Uh, of course Ramis and Aykroyd are in it, Ernie Hudson's in it, Sigourney Weaver, we'll talk about her in a bit, Rick Moranis, Annie Potts. What you're going to see in these films, and I think this is one of the genius pieces of it, was the casting is a lot of improv comedy actors. And uh it, with the exception of ramus who's, who's sort of a different on that one, but he was a National Lampoon guy, and he did Second City, and, you know, of course, Murray and Aykroyd were SNL guys. It, 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 I think having that kind of actor lends itself well to this type of film. We'll, we'll get to a bit of that. But it was released in 84, but we should say this thing was written, like, back in the 70s by Aykroyd, wasn't it?
1: Well, actually, I did not find that on um, my favorite website, imdb.com. That, but in truth, it's the person who was supposed to play Peter Vinkman, who was Bill, it wound up being Bill Murray's role was supposed
0: to be John Bullish. When when Aykroyd was dreaming this thing up, he was looking for. he And, and Ramos says, you know, in all the interviews, if you, you'll listen to Harold Ramus talk about this film, that he sort of added the techno babble side to this, but it was. He and Aykroyd did a lot of ghost themed uh, skits on Saturday Night Live, and they tried mm-hmm. to make them rather realistic from what I've read. And so when they, they decided to go back and do a ghost story, they wanted it to do something that. that that was in popular literature, and I actually went and dug this up. I can't believe I did this. There was literature in the late 70s, early 80s about technology where you could capture the, the materialization of ghosts in some way. So they were fascinated with this parapsychology and all this stuff. And Ramis says he was sort of the technical in, and Aykroyd was all the character and, and the comedy and, and the, the larger And So Aykroyd's building this story. And, and Belushi is the guy he wants to play, uh, uh, the Venkman role. He's got, uh, they're trying to think of other people. You mentioned it from the outset. Eddie Murphy was supposed to play the, the Winston character. That all changed. We'll get to him in a bit. But by the time they, they really, the first script, and I haven't read any of it, but everything I've read about it was that there's no way you could have filmed it. Everybody told them, guys, there's, there's no technology available to film, uh, th- this kind of thing right now, y- you're going to have to uh, tone it down a bit. So this thing went in development for several years, and in that time, Belushi died. Um, uh, Eddie Murphy's star had begun to rise. you know, We could get to Beverly Hills Cop in another podcast, because that's a really interesting story, too, how he got that role. But he's off in California doing that, so they really break it down to there's going to be these three central characters and all these supporting actors. In, in this story about uh, this group of parapsychologists who get kicked out of the university they work for and go into business for themselves catching ghosts, and they're, they're kind of a half uh, exterminators SWAT team.
1: Right, and actually, according to something I read, they originally wanted the movie to take place in the future, and the Ghostbusters were going to be like the paramedics and stuff that we have today. And that is one of the reasons why they wanted the headquarters in a firehouse because the ghost hunters were going to be like firemen or paramedics. Like you, they get a signal, you call them, they come, they eliminate the ghost. But like you said, they said it would be, they don't have the technology available. It would take too long to do. And hence, hence why that never came to fruition. And they just kind of had to pare down the script Till they got what actually came on in 1984.
0: And there's a great interview at, uh, I think it was the Comic-Con a couple years ago, that Bill Murray's talking about Ghostbusters, and he has always said that the first, like, 45 minutes of that movie would, is the funniest thing he's ever been involved in. He feels like that's some of the best comedy he was ever involved in. And I think for the fact that the, the, it's the 1980s, so that this was released in June of 84, so this was a summer film, but it was shot mostly in 83, so you're shooting near, you know, near the end of 83 or in the middle of 83. You know, we got to remember, too, we're talking about the 1980s. It took a long time for a film to be shot, produced, and then post-produced. You know, nowadays you can do that in a matter of, of months. It took almost a year. Yeah.
1: You can do. Um, I actually was reading my Entertainment yeah. Weekly an interview with Catherine Eigel. Yeah. If you know anything about me, I loathe that woman. She gets on my last <laughs> nerve. But um, she was saying why she was quitting. Grays was because the sitcoms are the days are too long and it's more like a full time. Job where she can go and do a movie and go on like location for three or four months and she's done and she comes back and she can spend the rest of the year with her family.
0: Well, and, and you know, before we get to the plot of this thing, let's talk about where these, the principles were here in, in their acting world, okay? Rick Moranis was, you know, who's a side part of this is Louis Tully. He, I think he, I don't, I don't know if Little Shop of Horrors have been out yet or not, but he, he was way before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and all that other stuff that he did. Yes.
1: Which prompts me to wonder what happened to Rick Moranis after 1989. Because it seems like he did this, he blew up for five years, and then did the last Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and is like never been heard from again.
0: Yeah, he, he kind of disappeared from the face of the planet. But you had Murray, who who had, had some film success at... Uh, Caddyshack had had been a huge Mm -hmm. hit for him and a few other things. Ramis had directed that and had done Stripes. I think Murray was in that, too. Those guys worked together a lot. Aykroyd had been in a lot of things, had written a lot of stuff. They were all coming off their... Their SNL high Sigourney Weaver to me was the the interesting one cast here because she was a star at this point. Alien had been out in '79. She had done a few other things just before the sequel to Alien came out. But she was a star, and she really plays a bit part here and and a, an interesting role for her. I you know we'll get to her in a bit in the cast. But well, I have to agree
1: with you on that. I thought it was a very interesting role because when I imagine Sigourney Weaver, I imagine like. Alien, or yes, just, Ripley, yeah. Yeah, something more meat to it. Something like she's going to kick your butt. And this just, she just doesn't strike me as the damsel in distress type. Well, you let, know, let, let, and that's what this part kind of was.
0: Well, you're right. And let's look at this for, for a second. What she had done in between. She had done a, a, show, a film called Eyewitness. Um, and I don't know anything about that movie. She did one called The Year of Living Dangerously. I've seen that movie. It's kind of boring. And then she did Duel of the Century with, mm-hmm. uh, Gregory Hines and Chevy Chase, which was a huge flop. Uh, Eddie Murphy was in that too, but that was a huge flop. It had been panned, so she she needed a hit. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think yes. she had really done anything since Annie Hall and Alien that was worth noting. Yes,
1: I'm looking at her IMDB page now, and you're. You're right. She did um, Annie Hall in 1977, she did Alien in 1979, and in between in between those look like she did a TV miniseries called The Best of the Families in 1977 as well. And she, like you said, she did Eyewitness 1981, The Year of Living Dangerously 1982, and Deal of the Century, then Ghostbusters.
0: So maybe I'm, I'm casting, I'm thinking of Sigourney Weaver that I know post-aliens and post-this, which was 84 to 86, where she is a huge star. She does gorillas and Mist and, and everything else, but maybe she wasn't that big a star yet. So that, uh, that, that makes more sense now. I'm probably just projecting a bit of what I know of her now in 2010, as opposed to what she was in 84. You know, in 84, I thought she was the tall, dark-headed woman. You know, that's, that was her role. Uh, well, to <laughs> I think more
1: when she got to be a big star is when the second Ghostbusters came out, which is after Working Girl and is after Gorillas in the Mist. Mm. I would say that's when she's really, you yeah. know, a Hollywood a- A-lister. And unfortunately, um, and in 1992, she wound up doing an Alien sequel. So, I mean, I oh, think it just yeah. after 92, it just kind of went, to, she, That's I don't want to say downhill, but you know what I mean. It's
0: Well, like she, was, she was a... She was bright for about four years, and then it mm-hmm. just kind of tapered off. But now, you know, she's, she's worked steadily for years. I think she was in the latest Cameron flick with, with Avatar, which I haven't seen, but I hear she's pretty good in it. I don't You know, she's... She's had a, an excellent career, but I, I was thinking she was a bigger star at this point. She wasn't. So I think the biggest star in the film is probably Murray at this point. He, he's the one that's most recognizable. He does get top billing. Um, and next mm-hmm. to to Aykroyd, who everybody knows is, oh, that guy, you know. And and then everybody else is one of those people that, oh, I've seen that guy in this and that. And you, you'll you see him throughout the 80s. we we'll get to Let's get to the plot here, Anna, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, we'll talk our way kind of through the film and sort of what happens. And, and we'll go ahead and warn you now, folks. If you haven't seen this, by some odd chance you've run across this podcast and you're listening to us talk about it and you don't want it spoiled like to the get go, you might want to go ahead and turn it off now because this is going to be a spoiler heavy podcast. <laughs> um, because that's the only way I know how to talk is in asides and spoilers. Um, we, we start out in New York City and we meet these, these three characters very quickly at, uh, what's supposed to be Columbia University and they're parapsychologists and you get to see, uh, Bill Murray, you know, doing these little experiments where people are trying to guess what's on the back of the card and he's giving them electroshock therapy and of course, you know, play he's gonna play the smarmy car salesman guy. So the pretty girl is not even close to it and, and he's letting her pass. The little curly-headed guy actually gets one right and he just keeps buzzing you yeah. you know, which, uh, you, know I, you know we both work at universities we'll, we'll pull a, the curtain aside I know research goes on, and you just wonder you know how valid some of it is sometimes <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, that's what I'm working, is I'm a
1: research administrator <laughs> See, <that's perfect. laughs> well, you 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 really won't believe what they give they give money to do and I was thinking of that as I was watching the movie when the Dean or Whatever was saying, sure, was, yeah, yeah. was saying the board of regents, I'm like, oh god, I heard that. I hear that all the time, and it's like, we, you will not get any money. This grant is gone, and you just, I mean, I, I in my brief amount of time as a research administrator, I've not come across anything as, as um interesting as this. But I have some grants that I'm just like, really, they gave you money to study that, really, really. <laughs>
0: This is the the negative of uh, the effects of negative reinforcement on ESP, which I thought was just a you know they probably dug that out of some journal and ran with it, but it's hilarious, you know. And, and again, he plays Bill Murray is, and and all these actors will tell you that about ninety percent of the dialogue was just them kind of riffing because again, I, I go back to what I said earlier, the casting of improvisational comedy actors is a brilliant choice for these roles because you basically just have to tell these people you're a parapsychologist, you're letting the pretty girl by, and you're shocking the other dude, and they're going to come in and pull your funding, so go off. Go. All right,
1: hey, it's, uh, Zink, Zinkman also came across as um, the kind of suave ladies' man kind of where um, the roles Dan Aykroyd and Hill Ramus played were very, you know, nerdy, very... Analytical, and he came across as kind of the goof off ladies' man. Well, he was and, the
0: cool one, and they were the yeah, dirty friends, you know. So, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And I was reading, as you were saying, one of the opening things they were talking about there's a line in probably the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie where Bill Murray says, well, remember that time I stopped Egon from drilling a hole in his head? And and Harold Ramis responds as, it would have worked if you hadn't stopped me. Uh, yeah, or something. Just, and, on, yeah. on, and that was to- one of the things I read on the trivia is that that was totally improvised. Like, that yeah. was just... Totally improvised, which, like you said, is very was very good for this movie. The improvisational comedy.
0: I want to ask this: you brought it up. Do we buy Bill Murray as a ladies' man? He certainly got the moves and the words. That... I don't really, and
1: that brings me to another point. Where John Belushi, I, I, if I can't buy Bill Murray, I'm not going to buy John Belushi.
0: Yeah, and, well, and, and and one wonders because I mean again I haven't read the, the original script or anything if that was Murray's own little add-on because if you watch his films he's always playing the guy and I'm I'm always akin to that to you know who did he really replace on SNL Chevy Chase who is a you know in his heyday was a bit of a ladies man always played that kind of role in all those films I, I've always thought that was just him kind of playing Chevy. Doing this. So I don't know if you, you see that or not, but I've always thought Bill Murray did that.
1: I, d- I guess I don't because one of my uh, favorite movies is Caddyshack, mm-hmm. and where Chevy Chase is the suave, <laughs> you know, ladies' man, you know, the golfer no one can touch, kind of got this zen thing bu- on with. This kind of zen aura about him. And then you've got these old guys like Ted Knight, you know, trying to figure out what he's doing, how good is he, you know, is he going to come and beat me? And then you got Bill Murray, who's chasing a gopher.
0: Yeah, and, and it's high.
1: So- <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, I don't buy it. And it brings me something we can talk about in between the two. But in between the first one and the sequel, there was this cartoon
0: Oh yeah, um, we'll go the, the cartoon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was
1: this cartoon. So, I mean, I don't know. I've always, like I said, I'm when probably last time I watched this movie, I was not any older than ten years old. And you know, looking at it through thirty-year-old eyes, I'm looking at it differently. I look at it a little
0: differently than I did then, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that yeah, makes a ton of sense, and you bring up a good point. We need to, at some point, do an aside and talk about our reaction to this. Let's go back to the plot. The, you know, we get to the plot again. Verne's the one we really get to see. Uh, uh, Ackroyd's uh, character, his name's Ray Stance, and then Spengler, who's played by Ramis, come in as they're getting basically fired from the university. They're getting, they're getting kicked out. And they're sitting around trying to figure out what they're gonna do and they're they're having this whole conversation about, you know, uh well, you know, um they're having this whole conversation about, you know, can we really capture a ghost? Can we get can any of that really happen? And they get called into the library to chase this apparition that's running around. And I thought that whole scene in the library, which if you listen to the D V D commentary, and yes, I'm a big nerd and did when I watch this, you, you hear Ramus. And and Ivan Reitman talking about how, you know, it was the cheapest special effects. It's books on wires. It's stacking stuff up. It's, it's PAs on the other side of the wall pushing those card catalogs out. But it all works so well, and it builds this great suspense, and then you get this this ghost, and then she flashes the you know, her dead form at them or whatever, and they all freak out and run out of the building. And, and they're like, we'll call you, you know, and it's, it's hilarious. But it, but it's also frightful. And I thought, you know, this is uh, this is the film hooking you in very quickly that this is going to be a mix of horror and comedy. And it's going to be just enough scares that will make you jump out of your seat. But it, it's it's not so much that it's like Friday the 13th over the top.
1: Right. And like I said, the first time I watched this, I was probably five or six years old. First time I ever watched it. And, of course, I didn't watch in the movie theater. I watched DHS way back in the day. One thing I noticed I was reading about the movie was that they wanted it to be, Ivan Reitman, I believe, wanted it to be a family movie. Yeah. And I remember being, you know, six years old and scared. Just, it scared me to death. And granted, I'm weak at heart. I don't do roller coasters. I don't do Friday the 13th or anything like that. But, um, I just remember it was, it was on that borderline. Like you said, it wasn't Jason, Freddy Krueger, any, a nightmare on Elm Street, anything like that. It, but it was still scary, and it made you jump out of your seat. But you still have the comedy aspect of it.
0: They see the first ghost, they run out, and then of course they've been fired, and they're trying to come up with this idea. And Ramis and all, you know is pitching all the idea back and forth, and they they come up with the idea. That, you know they they go and borrow money from the bank, and they go and they're looking at property. And I want to say a, another genius piece of set direction is, the abandoned fire station. What a great idea! You know, to have have a headquarters at an old fire station. It just, it looked cool. It worked for everything they were doing, um, mm-hmm. and you could believe it. You could believe guys like this would be able to. to find some old run down property. I think you know, Remus has got the great lines about I think this building should be condemned, you know, he's doing all that bit in the film. I, a, and of course, what you know, Acrolad slides down the pole like, "Oh, we got to have it," you know, and and the, it's they like, turn, so cool. I know, and they turn it the, and you know, we're not really given a big timeline in this film, but they kind of turn it around and get it up and running pretty quick. So, you got to figure these guys have got their technology somewhat together. And I credit this film for one thing, that, you know, there's a lot of techno babble in this thing, but they don't go into a lot of depth with it. You just, you kind of catch up. You realize you're catching up on guys who've done research for maybe five or 10 years on stuff, and now they're just, they're starting to put all their little toys together and they've probably tested it out. You know, we don't really get a lot of looks at that stuff. I I give the film credit for that in 20 minutes, we know everything we need to know about these characters, what they're going to be doing, and we've set them into their first situation where they go to that, that beautiful hotel, the Cedric Hotel in New York, and they're going to capture their first ghost.
1: Right, and that was something else I noticed about the movie is that the plot moved very quickly. They didn't, you know, they didn't dwell on how they got this way or a lot of backstory. The plot moved very quickly. You just have time to figure out what they're about enough time to figure out what they're going to do and then the paranormal stuff starts coming and starts taking over and then they fix it and that was something i noticed when i watched it again was that the plot move and i think that's one thing that made the first movie so great is that the plot moved very quickly it didn't it didn't drag and that's something that's good to
0: have, especially if they were saying they wanted a family movie. Right, and, you know, we'll get to, what you know, who is this movie aimed at in a bit, because I think there was a, a bit of a difference of opinion from Reitman as a director and then the, the writers and the way the actors played it. But, you, I mean, it's a lean, it's, it's running time of 107 minutes. That includes the, the end credits, which are probably about five minutes by themselves. So in an hour or 40 minutes, I mean, they open the film, and boom, you're right there with them. They don't do, don't do a lot of credits and all that stuff they do all that at the end they're getting you in this story quickly now we got to talk about the the green slammer ghost Yeah, you know there's all those stories up there on the internet we mentioned what belushi was supposed to be in the film john belushi this is allegedly a a bit of a, a tip of the hat that if john belushi had had a ghost it would have been the slammer green yeah. ghost. I read uh, that
1: too.
0: which i think is hilarious and you know it, when we get into talking about the animated stuff what you know we'll, we'll get into sort of what his role became but this is a great First ghost, and you're looking at effects, you know, visual effects shots in 1983. Dennis Murin was one of the effects directors on this. He did Star Wars, he was one of the guys, you know, from that era, and he did the Terminator films, and you know, among other things, but he, he uh, he's uh, uh directing the visual effects here, and I thought it worked pretty good. And even in 2010, that effect still holds up. Like you, you buy the apparition and the ghost. It, it looks good, and then you buy the whole laser beam, you know, shooting at the ghost and blowing up the uh, the. Uh, which is a great line again. The, the the card of the cleaning lady and she, what the hell are y'all doing? You know, they <laughs> she's scared you. Know, they scared her half to death. But I thought the effects looked pretty good for 1984.
1: Well, I, I would disagree. But, okay. Um, you, I would disagree. I, I think the sets look like 1984. I don't. I don't know if I've got too much of um, my husband's influence on me and too much of you know. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I watch. We've got the HD TV and the surround sound and everything. And if and I've watched all the. Well, I haven't watched the watched all the Star Wars with them and and even it just. I just think that it's a nineteen it's nineteen eighty four effects. I bought it in nineteen eighty four. I even I'm gonna go out on a limb here and probably get crucified, but I think the effects in the second movie are better than the ones in the first. Oh. But, oh, oh I know, oh, I know. We're I, I'm gonna like have, that. We're gonna that die that die five years I'm like, okay, that five years makes a little bit of a difference. But I'm I mean, that's just my personal opinion. But I mean I think that I think they worked for the movie, don't get me wrong, and I think in nineteen eighty four they were awesome effects
0: well that's that's my that that's my point i mean we're we're in a world that is one year removed from Return of the Jedi, okay, which at the time was yeah. the last Star Wars movie, which everybody thought was the greatest thing in spite of having a bunch of you know Muppets in it Everybody had loved those movies that's you know those three films, the Star Wars films of it there those were the benchmarks for special effects up to this point. Because even the first Terminator, most people just gave it a pass because the story was cool. The special effects in that look so bad when you watch it now. This one, uh, you're right, they don't look great, but I think they they don't take me out of the movie. Like, I don't I don't get hung up on the fact, like, God, that looks really fake. That plate wasn't done really well. You know you know what I mean? Right. Like, they don't, they don't take me out of the story, and I think they, they work in the context of that.
1: They effectively get the job done. But just looking looking back at it, when you stop and think, you're like, yeah, those are 1984. And I'm not saying they're not great for 1984, but I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's good, but no. But, and they went with the story, and they went with the movie, and that's kind of what you'd expect.
0: Well, you know, and and that's another thing, in that interview, if you watch Murray's interview from from the most recent Comic-Con and some of that stuff, he talks about how effective the story is, and like he said, the first 45 minutes of that movie are some of the funniest stuff he's ever done, because it was just those three guys, it was all about those characters, and, and you you know in a film it's easy to get bogged down and let's do some character development and then let's move the plot forward they're doing it simultaneously here and I feel like they're doing it well like we're we're learning as we go and we're asking the audience to to keep up it's a it's a sprint we're gonna fly through this and they're not hitting you with too much and I really I give Ackroyd a lot of credit for that but you got to lay some of that on Reitman too and the way he shot it. And move them along, and then you know we'll say that the editors, you know, uh, did a good job with it too. They, they move it along. We we get this green ghost that they're chasing around this hotel, and they absolutely trash the hotel, which is hilarious. And we got to talk about you know, Bankman gets slimed, which is this you know green goo that you know that whole Nickelodeon era, you know, when they were dropping green slime on people. That that resonated with everybody, kid to adult. Everybody knew what that was. And this idea, and I thought Murray played it great. They get the thing trapped in the, in the ballroom and, you know, they just wreck the place, but they ultimately capture the ghost. And one of the best sequences is them coming out of that ballroom and they, and then the guy haggles them over the price. And they're like, we'll just, we'll we'll just let it go. We can just put it back where
1: we found it. And they're like, no, no, no
0: exactly and then the next thing and we get a great and this is so and this thing is so 80s I'll say that they do the the montage right there in the you know the, the we're the third of the way through the film and we get the big we're getting to a montage right after that we you know we we've uh we don't know a lot about these guys, but the now Larry King's talking about them, and this was back before you know he was he, the huge television star that he now. Well, we we get that, we get the, the we got the theme song. We'll get to the song in a bit. They, they got the song playing. We got them running around the city, all this stuff going on. What we we've kind of skipped over a piece here. They they catch this ghost, but we're also introduced to a woman Sigourney Weaver's role, Dana Barrett. In this, and this is before their business has really taken off. So she comes in because she comes home. She's a symphony orchestra player. She plays the cello, I think, or something. Some mm-hmm. someone says whatever. You know, she gets that. and she she comes home to her Central Park West apartment, which is you know, if you've ever been in New York and anything, that's like the high dollar realty. You know, only the best of the best stay there. It's gorgeous. You know, yeah. She comes, you know, she comes home and, like, eggs are frying themselves on the countertop and the refrigerator has this demon dog-looking thing, you know, who screams the name Zool at her. And we'll talk about Zool and the role there. You know, she freaks out so... Like everybody else, she's seen their cheesy TV commercial, which looks like, you know, your pest control commercial from the 80s. Go, you know, go pick your, your name. And, and she goes in and sees these guys. And of course, you know, the ladies man jumps over the railing, nearly kills himself to get to her. Cause, and, and I want to tell you now, this is one thing. You could put Bill Murray with a lot of people. There is no way on earth a woman that looks like Sigourney Weaver and him would ever get together. Ever for anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, in the movie, I agree with you. If it's a movie, I can't buy that. But I think in real life there are some women who find us as humor attractive.
0: I guess, but, you know, he doesn't really play a sense of humor, though. He's, as she calls him out on it, she says, you're more like a game show host. You know, your other <laughs> yeah. partners are, and, and he really is, and he's really playing the game show host, which is funny because they, they call that back in the second one. But
1: Well, I like the part, too, where he comes in her, um, apartment he's supposed to be checking for something it looks like he's pest control spraying with that thing he gives it some technique she's like what are you doing he's like squeezing the bulb and moving the little wand it looks like somebody coming to spray your house for cockroaches or something exactly and
0: and, and we haven't and that's another beautiful thing we have no idea what that thing is supposed to be doing and we're never told it's just another like he it's just one of our little toys it was probably you know the prop department threw a bunch of stuff together and they said yeah get the one with the wand and the bulb it looks kind of like a cockroach sprayer well, i
1: think actually what it was if i remember correctly is that it's um um for gas company people use it to like check for gas leaks or something.
0: Oh, that's incredible. So uh, you know, that that again, the the genius of the film is just you just roll with it. You know, we let the audience just pick up with it as we go. But we've met her and, and there's definitely this this he likes her a lot, you know, and he's really trying to wine and dine her, you know, and a the matter they they're talking about we need to take her out to eat and like we'll we we'll have no money, this is before they get the call to go get the slime or go. So they do that we get the, the training montage, I call it the Rocky training montage, uh, <laughs> it in the middle there with the, with the theme song. and.
1: I actually like those because I'm not, like you were saying about the character development, we learn about the characters while the plot moves along. Yeah. I hate movies where it's like all they're doing is developing a character and, like, nothing ever ha- happens. Yeah. One movie I could think of that does that is the talented Mr. Ripley that mm-hmm. movie drives
0: me nuts. Well, that, that is nothing but a character development, and then you're cut off when the movie gets interesting. I would agree with you there. Uh, right. And and like we said, we, we've told people enough that you're picking up on – what I always felt like watching this is we're picking up on the good part of the story. We skipped all the backlog on these guys and what their history is together and how they've been interested in this – we're picking up on window business booms. We see it boom. They bring in their fourth member, Winston Zedmore, played played very well by Ernie Hudson, who you've seen play police officers in just about every kind of you know film in the world now. Great actor. You mentioned it at the outset, Anna. Was supposed to be Eddie Murphy's role, but he got Beverly Hills cop. He's doing that. My understanding was if he had played it, this role would have been much bigger. He would have been introduced at the outset with the rest of them.
1: That's true. That's what I that's what I read as well, that he would have been introduced, not like halfway through, but towards the probably top 25% of the movie. He would have been introduced way in advance.
0: And, and you know, if you, if you read up on him, the, the character, he's supposed to be from the same background as these guys. He's an archaeologist and a parapsychologist. He's got all these, you know, degrees and stuff like that. But he really comes in, and you almost—I kind of feel like when he walks in the door, it's like they're just picking up like another exterminator. You know, they don't really develop him much. He's just kind of there to be funny. He gets one great scene later on with Ackroyd that we we can talk about. But he doesn't get a lot of scenes. But I still thought he played it well. I mean, he he did it well, and it was interesting to have the fourth person there now, so you can split these people up. You got you got Ramus in the lab with Annie Potts. We haven't even talked about her, the the, the wisecracking secretary. Yeah. But what A lot of people will consider the quintessential New York accent and the woman's like from Kentucky.
1: That's another thing I was thinking of, that this movie was two years before Designing Women. And then it, when she went and did the second one, Designing Women, then it's Heyday. It's like one of the number one shows on TV at the time
0: we we've got her and Ramus sort of doing their thing you've got Bill Murray basically chasing Sigourney Weaver in the city and then you you give Dan Eckwood, somebody else to play off of as these are the two guys that go out and take calls and do stuff all the time they they're working through all this and as part of this we we get another character we get Rick Moranis's character Louis Tully and this was supposed to be John Candy and he right. just couldn't make it work time-wise and and he had different ideas for the way it should play and they, they brought in Moranis, who basically said, I'm just going to be the geekiest person you can think of. And he invented that whole bit about being an accountant and all that little thing where he's running around his party and talking about people. That's all him just riffing. And, again, you know, you get those improv actors, and they can just go with it. And I thought he was perfect in that role. So we've been introduced to him.
1: Well, you were saying about him riffing the parties and the accountants and stuff, and it says that the party scene where he's going on about – Salmon and everything that was done in one continuous shot and was almost entirely improvised.
0: And see, that's incredible too. That's, I mean, you don't get those kind of shots. Today anymore, I think that no. that was a hallmark of directors from the '70s and the '80s. Guys like John Carpenter and Reitman certainly is in there from the comedy area, and you could argue you know, a few others in in that pile. But guys who just did these long panning shots where people are talking, and you're again, this this movie is moving. I feel like this movie is on a speeding bullet train from the minute we open, and and it's not going to slow down. It, you're you're moving through plot, and you're you're learning about characters, and you're seeing him interact with these people. Now we we've also forgotten about the, or we got to introduce the the character from the EPA, William, Walter Peck, who's played by William Atherton, who has said for years that he gets yelled at every time he goes to New York, you know, because he plays the the most smarmy character in the world. And, and we're talking about 1984, you know, we look at the EPA now in 2010. Through different eyes than we did in 84. But in 84, we're in the, we're in the Reagan 80s. Everybody hated the EPA. They were the worst, you know, people that it, it were ever invented. All they did was cause trouble. And he's in there to, you know, figure out how you guys are capturing ghosts and how are you keeping them here and is it safe? And it, I think you're, he, he exposed them to be a fraud and I thought he was brilliant.
1: Well, I agree. I agree with that. But the movie themes as you go along. I don't think the EPA has really gotten that great of a reputation because look at, you know, look at the Simpsons movie and that was no. only 30 years ago. You know, I, I don't, I don't think over 20 years the EPA has, has came out with this glowing, glowing reputation. I still think they're kind of the governmental agency that's a pain in everybody's rear end. But I mean, I, well, one thing when I was watching that, that, that scene where he's questioning Bill Murray, I'm like, what does the EPA care? <laughs> you know, I'm like, why do they care how their story goes? Who who cares? Why does the EPA care? It's not like they're dumping the ghost in the sewer or anything, and maybe that's what the EPA was checking, and I just missed it.
0: Well, but, I, he, he comes in there and says that he thinks it's all a, a hoax by these guys and that they're just – To his credit, he comes in and Bankman just really, you know, is standoffish to him. He's not going to let him look at his files and doesn't want to, don't look at the storage unit and all this. So there's this, and I think you had to create some sort of tension is that you you wouldn't allow guys to run around with nuclear power on their backs and, and stuff like that without some sort of government intervention. We're at that point in life where people realize People, the government's going to look at you, especially in the 1980s. I mean, you were, we're at the end of communism and stuff. There's all this, you know, symbolism in there with it, but I, I thought that was simply just a plot device, and it could have been just a, a poorly executed plot device that actually works for this film. We give them an antagonist besides the ghost, because I got the feeling in this, with the exception of Zool, who we'll get to in a minute, there's not, the, the ghosts aren't the antagonists of the Ghostbusters. It's the government and the EPA that are that are the antagonists to the Ghostbusters. Did you get that?
1: Yes, I, I agree with you on that because it, and I think that's actually a theme throughout both movies, is that the government's the antagonist of the Ghostbusters. I mm-hmm. agree with you. I think that's a theme throughout the movies, both movies.
0: They're a good foil for this, and in their existence, this is a time, like you say, not a lot of people like them, and they're not getting a real favorable review through history. This is really where it started, in a lot of ways, in popular culture. So,
1: well, also I would like to say the EPA guy perf- did perfect comic relief because I oh. don't know if you can tell, but he's one of the guys. Like this, ton of the Marshmallow Man just comes down, and he's like, he, uh, oh, he yeah. says something like, "To hell with you, Vincent," or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and unfortunately, they didn't get the shot, or didn't put the shot in. Where where you can see that it's him, and you don't know that it's him until he's covered in all the marshmallow, and yeah. he's cursing at Peter Bankman and it's just—I I think he was perfect comic relief. I think he played the part of a kind of—you know how the government is—it's like they tell you, but they don't tell you.
0: Exactly. He's the he's the antithesis of what the X Files characters. That we sure. love are he's the the wrong thing you know he he's just there to muck it up and now we we we've got him breathing down their neck there's a lot of ghosts going on there's a great conversation it's probably Ernie Hudson's best scene in the whole film and he and and Ackroyd are driving across the bridge and they're having this talk about how busy they've been and that. That you know the dead are rising from the grave. Is this the end of times? And there's this film build that you know brings religion in without being real heavy handed with it or taking a stance or anything. But they they use it as a really good plot piece, and they you know they're quoting scripture and they're talking back and forth. It oh, was really neat. It's a really neat conversation. There's cool music playing in the background, and you got you got these guys sort of. You know, you got to remember these are you know PhD educated guys. Amongst being their SWAT team exterminator, you know, persona, they're educated men, and they're having this really deep conversation about what is going on, and they know something bigger is at hand, and the bigger thing starts to unfold because you have the the gatekeeper and the keymaster uh, who appear as as ghosts, and basically they possess. Dana and Lewis Tully, that, uh, Sigourney Weaver and, and Rick Moranis' role, and they gotta get those two people together because by their union, and we'll get to how they lay that out, the, you know, they're gonna bring about the, 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 freeing of Zool and this ultimate, you know, apocalypse in New York. And yeah. all that, all that is going down. And the Ghostbusters are basically unaware of it. In the midst of that, the EPA comes in and shuts the containment grid down. All the ghosts escape, so it all works to Zool's plan. There's all this spectral energy released, all this stuff going on. The Ghostbusters are thrown in jail now, and they, <coughs> and then we we got to figure out a way to get them out of jail. But I thought the way they they did the possession angle without getting too exorcist with it was perfect.
1: Yeah. They did. And like I said, when I watched it as a six-year-old, the whole possession thing was scary. Yeah. But And I mean, and for crying out loud, I had it on on my computer, and I went away to do something. And my four-year-old came out, and she puts the headphones on. She's watching it. She's like, oh, Mommy, let me watch this with you. I'm like, okay. So, so it wasn't that. It was the perfect tone, which is what they said, that perfect mix, like you said, of horror and comedy and,